Hello again. This is Gary Meese, The Case Against. We're continuing to talk about the West Memphis Three case. I'm going to uh, be talking about the Shane Divilbiss eye gouging incident uh, what, with, that involved Davian Eccles uh, later in the show, but right now I'm going to talk about something that came up in some discussion this week online. It has to do with uh, some observations by Jackie Hicks, who was the, the grandfather of Stevie Branch, who was the father. He, he's now deceased. He was the father of uh, Pam Hobbs. Later, she now prefers to be known as Pam Hicks, I believe. And um, he got very hands-on with the uh, search. I mean, this was his grandson, whom he dearly loved. He poured himself all into the search. And uh, when the body came back from the the state laboratory, the crime lab. He uh, he wanted to really get a good look at it, which I think a lot of people would <laughs> a lot of people would not want to do that. Anyway, I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from Blood on, the Blood of Innocence, which was written by Guy Real. Mark Parasquia and Bartholomew Sullivan. And this is a book, original book about the West Memphis Three. Copyright's 1995, but it was written before that. Uh, I knew all these guys. I know all these guys. I haven't seen, seen or heard anything about Guy Real in a long time, but Parasquia was working uh, at the commercial appeal when I left. 10 years ago or so, and uh, I think he's a professor at uh, University of Memphis now, or teaching, I don't know if he's a full-fledged professor, and he worked there until very recently, and um, there have been a lot of cutbacks at the Commercial Appeal, uh, to say the least. The staff's down to about a tenth of what it was when I was working there 20 years ago. Uh, Bartholomew Sullivan, Bart, as I knew him, uh, was working from Washington for a long time. His, his wife did a lot of uh, freelance work for us uh, in the suburban editions. And I don't know his wife, Susan, and I don't know if he's still working there or not because I, I don't get the newspaper. I don't read it and I'm not following up on his career. But And I'm not even going to try, but, but he worked there until at least certainly fairly recently and may still be working there or working for Scripps Howard in some other capacity. Uh, well, not Scripps Howard, uh, Gannett. The newspaper used to be owned by Scripps Howard and they sold to Gannett a few years ago. Um, this is from page 134 in The Blood of Innocence.
The family decided to bury Stevie in Steele, Missouri, a town of 2,400, 15 miles north of Blytheville. It's Blytheville, Arkansas, where the Hicks family still currently lives. Uh, Jackie Hicks, Stevie's grandpa, grew up there and owned 11 burial plots in a cemetery just off Interstate 55. Hicks had been beside himself since Stevie's death. He could not rest. When the boy's body came back from the crime lab in Little Rock, Hicks insisted on inspecting his grandson's wounds. Hicks watched helplessly as funeral director Charles Adams pulled Stevie's broken body from a plastic bag. This wasn't his grandson. It couldn't be. Just a week earlier, Stevie's little face had smiled into his, blue eyes flashing when his grandpa gave him the new renegade bicycle. Now the face was unrecognizable. It looked to Hicks as if Stevie's jaw was nearly torn from his face. The shiny blue eyes were busted. Quote, some son of a bitch has done a number on this baby with a pair of combat boots or engineer's boots, unquote, Hicks told himself, then others. He looked over the body carefully. He could see no marks on his grandson's wrist where he'd been bound, but he saw that one ankle had a bruise, quote, about as deep as cigarette burns pulling into his skin, unquote. Uh, Hicks could not stifle his curiosity. He inspected his grandson's privates. There was a scratch beside the boy's penis, Hicks noted. But he assured himself his grandson had not been raped. I'm not a professional. I'm not a doctor, he said later, but I don't believe it. I don't believe Steve was raped. Jackie Hicks ached. His body was still sore from his slide down the ditch and Robin Hood during the search for the bodies, the boys. But it was more than that. He was at a loss. This mountain of a man, this ex-cop, a former wrestler, he now felt utterly helpless. It was inhuman the way Stevie looked. And uh, that's, you know, sad in itself. Um, I looked at the uh, autopsy photos of uh, Stevie Branch more closely after this particular passage came up during this discussion. And uh, it's very disturbing to see those, those autopsy photos. I'm not really recommending anybody do that, but um, they are there for somebody who just wants to look from a purely objective standpoint to get some information. Um, Stevie's left side of the face is t grossly torn up. There are huge holes in uh, this, his cheeks. Uh, there's a mark on his brow that I contend and a number of other people believe was made by the hilt end of a, a Rambo type knife, very much like and probably from 
the Rambo knife found in the lake behind Jason Baldwin's house. We can't prove, absolutely prove beyond all reasonable doubt because there's no, the much vaunted scientific evidence isn't there and it'll never be there. But you, you can look at the wound. You can look at, look at how that uh, hilt end, uh, the cap is gone. It's busted off or gone. If the cap was on there, it would have left a wound very much like what you see with the little uh, cross in the middle. It's very distinct. No, bot, no human being biting somebody's uh, brow is going to leave a tiny perfect cross mark in the perfect center of that circle. It just doesn't happen that way. Turtles don't bite that way either as far as I know. But uh, looking at the autopsy photos, it's really disturbing to see how Stevie's face is torn up, abraded. The description of the West Memphis Three smashing their boots down into those boys' heads and faces to get them to sink further into the mud of that little nasty little ditch that was running through Robin Hood Hills is a horrific uh, scene. And the evidence seems to suggest that's exactly what happened. Uh, we know that Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were wearing army boots that day. And, uh, you know, a vicious kid with an army boot, after cutting, making his cuts into Stevie's face, stomping his face down into the mud would have left marks very similar to what was left on Stevie's face. I'm not an expert on this. I can't prove that, but there have been experts that look at, have looked at this and have seen marks that, that, that confirm pretty much what I'm saying. So uh, I'm going to move on. I want to say one more thing. I, doing a brief discussion online with somebody and you know they do one of these oh I've got some information that no one else has about this case and when I reveal it uh, all will be revealed and it'll be clear and it usually has to do with you know somebody beside almost always has to do something with somebody besides the three killers and Usually they prefer not to look at the evidence against the three killers. They're interested in finding some obscure fact that they want to pull out to use to prove that it was really somebody else. You know, harping on uh, the time, a particular time that Terry Hobbs said he was in the woods. That would have been the same time that the boys were being killed, even though Hobbs didn't even say that, for instance, is a pretty common 
common thing. I think he said he was there around six. He wasn't very exact on the times, as I recall. And uh, there's no way he would have been exact on the time. So to say he was in the woods when the boys were being killed, ergo he must have killed the boys, is frankly ridiculous. He wasn't exact on the times. He wasn't exact. He wasn't very precise about where he actually went. And the it makes all sorts of assumptions that just don't really hold up under scrutiny. The uh, uh, you list you go back and look over the statements of David Jacoby, and you get you know you get further information that Hobbes would have had a very hard time doing any of that, and then turning getting himself cleaned up, and then show up back at the Jacoby. Very hard time. He wouldn't have been able to do it. To do what is described as, as his interactions with Jacoby. That, that evening and to pull off the crimes. It, the Jacoby's statements are not highly consistent because he was not asked about all this until, what, 14 years later? It was a stressful time. It was a long time ago. They weren't checking their times at the time that this was going. He wasn't checking his watch so he could give a deposition, you know, 14, 15 years later. Truth is, is they didn't know they, they they didn't know what they had on their hands at that particular time, and Jacoby's w memories differ somewhat from Hobbes' memories, but both of them were giving information based on events that occurred 14, 15 years ago. And if you want to tell me that oh well he should remember every detail of everything that went on, including the times. When his son, his stepson, w went missing, you know, 14 years before, because it was, you know, a, me a memory that w just wouldn't go away. That's not how memory works. I made this point before, but I'll make it again. Uh, unless you had a special breakfast set up or something, I bet you can't tell me. You know, I, I've used, uh, you know, weddings, very memorable days, weddings, uh, the birth of your children. I can't tell you what I had for breakfast the day my children were born. Can you tell, can you tell me what you had for breakfast? I, you know, I don't know what time I went to sleep for sure. And unless if I have, unless I have some cue for mem that, that those particular days, I know I was up pretty late <laughs> uh, the day my son was born because we had some, there was some minor difficult they weren't minor at the time but you know he he was a little taken a little early and he had some breathing difficulties and it was very stressful and I know I know I was talking to my mother on long distance on the phone late that night. I do remember that. What time it was, I couldn't begin to tell you. So that's an example. I had a reason for remembering some events that day, but as far as putting it all together, there's no way. Of course, it's been a long time ago. But I can take more recent events, and I, you know, um, and I can't tell you exactly what I was doing. 
at particular times and where I went and who I talked to on days that are otherwise very memorable or days I won't forget ever. And that's just the way memory works. So Mr. Hobbs, Terry, uh, remembered as best he could and Mr. Jacoby remembered as best he could. And what they do remember is that they interacted with each other in, in, in a time frame that would have made it virtually impossible for Hobbs to have pulled this off as if he had any motive for doing that, as if he had the means for doing it, as if a single, a single guy just sort of wandering around the woods and coming across some kids all by himself is going to be able to subdue all three of them and commit this horrific crime and then turn around and act as if he's upset about it, uh, upset his stepson's missing. Anyway, I'm going to talk. And my point being, my point being is, is, uh, is that the cranks that get on here with the West Memphis Three and they pick up on one little factor and they go on and on and on about this without looking at the bigger picture, without looking at the totality of the evidence. And almost all of it is circumstantial evidence. You know, I, the, the idea that, oh, that we're going to get some scientific findings from all this and solve the case is at this point is absurd. What scientific findings are you going to get? It's not going to happen. You know, the forensics are done on this case. Unless somebody wants to spend even more money than Peter Jackson and Johnny Depp and whoever and Henry Rollins and whoever else contributed, Eddie Vedder, whoever else contributed to the West Memphis Three cause and enabled them to do the testing of the materials that they were doing for the evidentiary, evidentiary hearing that never came about because the West Memphis Three, instead of presenting their evidence and saying, hey, look at this, we've got new evidence. Somebody, it looks like somebody else did this. We certainly didn't do this. Why don't you, why don't you set us free or at least give us a new trial and let us prove, let us prove to the state that, you know, we couldn't possibly have done this and in fact, the, all the evidence implicates somebody else. Instead of doing that sort of legal action, what legal action did they take? Just short of a deadline to present all this wonderful new evidentiary evidence, which is a lot of DNA testing, which is expensive, and they'd spent the money on it. It's not as if they didn't have the money to do that just short of the deadline to present this to the state, what happened? They politicked for a, a plea deal and got it from a weak, feckless weasel named Scott Ellington, who no doubt got a little bit of an arm twisting from Dustin McDaniel, who was buddies with one, uh, with, uh, some of the uh, West Memphis Three attorneys, and they had a bunch of them. 
and I'm not saying they did anything illegal. That's how lawyers work. They negotiate things. I'm not saying that that was, I'm saying it was, it is wrong, but it's not, nothing illegal went on here. It's what happens every day in the legal system. And every day people are outraged by things that are, that, that so-and-so got off with this amount of sentence. The West Memphis Three actually spent a pretty good amount of time in prison for their crimes. You know, frankly, in a better world, all three of them would have been hanging from an end of a rope uh, roughly mm, April of 1994. That would have been a more satisfactory resolution to the case, and I would have no problem with, with that having happened. Uh, but that's not the world we live in, for good or bad, and I would say to, to a certain extent bad. I covered a kidnapping, uh, extortion, murder case that happened in Biloxi, Mississippi. It happened in Gulfport, actually. Uh, Gulfport, Mississippi in 1970. Five, I think, 76, 76. Last time I checked, the guy who committed the crime put a bullet in a lady's head just because he could, clearly did it. There's no question that the man did it. He's still on death row. He's been there all this time. The woman had children who are now middle, in, well into middle age. I think her husband has died. He still hasn't seen justice. He never saw justice for his wife's killer. I was a very young reporter. Now I'm a retired journalist pushing on, you know, uh, coming up on his 67th birthday. And I think I was 22, 23 at the time. You know, wrap your head around all that. That is the justice system that, as it works or doesn't work. That guy should have been put away a long time ago. But he wasn't. Damien Eccles should have been put away a long time. And I say put away, I mean in the ground, in a hole someplace. Throw some dirt on him. Don't leave a marker. Nobody, you know, he should be forgotten. He shouldn't be running around promoting his books and uh, his stupid little magic classes. I will say, I will say this, at least he's out, you know, that those are harmless, I think, in the sense that, you know, he's not really, it's not really hurting anybody that he does this s stupid stuff. But, you know, he, he, he spends an awful lot of time uh, talking about how he's a victim and this and that, and he just can't get anything done, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, Jason's a professional victim. Neither one of them have ever had uh, a real job for any length of I don't think Damien's ever had a real job for any length of time. Jason Baldwin may have worked a, a few menial jobs up in the Pacific Northwest briefly. But, you know, he's decided he's going to cash in on his status as a professional victim. And Jesse Miskelly, I've, you know, he lives off the kindness of people. That's what it really comes down to. 
So there you go. Three parasites draining the draining society with their pointless, useless. Uh, Baldwin's case, he's just collecting a bunch of money. I don't see him really doing any kind of real work for justice. Even though the name of the organization is Proclaim Justice, I, it's not really clear if he's doing anything except collecting money. Go figure. Go think about that a little bit. Yeah, I got off on this. And maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. Anyway, I'm going, <laughs> and I know I say anyway a lot. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to improve my delivery on some things. I'm going to read uh, from Blood on Black, which is one of my books available on Amazon. I have another book, I have a two volume set, Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go, that really lay out uh, the whole case as I see it. Concerning the crime, not so much the aftermath, certainly there are other things that you we, that could be looked at in the context of uh, the all the legal maneuverings and all that stuff that are in Devil's Knot that I, I waded through but I found extremely boring. Uh, I don't have all that stuff. I'm not interested in that. Oh, my alarm's going off. Stop. Uh, I don't have all that, uh, but uh, I'm going to read, uh, and I also have a book, uh, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, which is a revised, condensed, combined version of those two books. All of them are available on uh, Amazon and uh, in Kindle and in paper. The Kindle's pretty affordable. Paper, particularly for the first two books, are, it's kind of expensive by my standard. But I don't make a lot off the books because they were kind of expensive to print. They're big, they're big books. Anyway, uh, the title of this particular chapter in Blood on Black is I'm going to kill you. I'm going to rip your eyes out. And guess who said that? Noted occultists, Damien Eccles. In his book, Life After Death, Damien claimed that the only act of violence he ever committed was a fight at school. Eccles minimized the attack as just a typical schoolyard confrontation. Not so. It was serious enough that months later, in February 1993, when the other boy in the fight, Shane Dibblebiss, had gone missing, foul play was suspected because Eccles had made threats on Dibblebiss's life. Eventually, Dibblebiss turned up unharmed. Dibblebiss, 18, gave a statement to West Memphis uh, Detective Mike Allen on June 17, 1993. All right, I was going to school and met Deanna Holcomb and intern Damien Eccles. Because they were boyfriend, girlfriend at the time, I began to hang around with them. I spoke with Damien Eccles on several occasions, just like friends, then emotional things began to develop between me and Deanna Holcomb. She broke up with Damien and soon went out with me, which led Damien to believe I had stolen Deanna from him. He threatened to kill Deanna, threatened to kill several of my family members, just not my uncle, but several others. 
He threatened to kill me and then later came up behind me in the hallway while I was at my locker. I knew he was back there, so I just started to walk. I didn't look at him or anything. He jumped on me from behind, dragging me down to the ground and calling at my face with his fingernails. He, uh, people was saying he was trying to rip my eyes out and my, my, the scars is what it looked like. When I got up, I turned around and I was going to fight, but he was being held down by several of the people that were in the hallway witnessing it, so I didn't have to. Okay, that's the end of his statement. Eccles routinely filed his fingernails into one and a half inch long points. Pretty much like a vampire. Eccles was suspended while Dibblebiss was allowed back in class. Back to Dibblebiss. One of the threats was against my uncle, whom had told him that if he fought with me, that my uncle would jump into the fight, said Dibblebiss. Eccles, talking about the uncle, threatened him by saying if, if he jumped in, he'd cut him to pieces and bury him in Deanna's front yard, unquote. The uncle was 16-year-old Kyle Perkins, also a student at Marion High. Most of the threats were just generally short, you know, like, I'm going to kill you, or, you know, like when he had me down on the ground, he said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to rip your eyes out and all this stuff. You know, generally, you know, just short phrases. There was no long, drawn-out threats, said Devilbiss. Concerning Eccles, Devilbiss said, he was a very imposing person. When he was around, quote, friends, he could silence them with just a glance. I mean, he could look at them and they would be quiet. You know, if they were saying something he disagreed with or if they were disagreeing with him, he would just have one look and they would be quiet. It seemed to me that all his friends feared him, including Deanna Holcomb. The way it seemed to me that she was around him because she was afraid that if she left, he would kill her. She did tell me that he scared her, that she thought he was crazy. She didn't tell me anything about sacrifices or anything, but she did tell me that at one time they had sexual intercourse in a room full of people watching them. She told me of, you know, that is the main thing she told me about, like, a circle of people were watching them, and that is with candles around and everything like that. End of Dibblebiss's statement there. Sexual intercourse between ceremonial leaders is a long-standing practice in Wicca, and that's the religion that uh, Damien was dab dabbling in at the time. And I don't think he's has ever been an occult dabbler, but he has done a lot of dabbling in various branches of the occult and spirituality, including Wicca. Uh, and the long-standing practice in Wicca, dating back to the witch cult founder, founders uh, Gerald Gardner's proclivities for flagellation, nudity, and exhibitionism. Yeah, all that stuff that's in there is mostly just uh, Gerald Gardner's sexual fetishes on a grand scale. And he's British, and apparently there's something about the British and the British schooling system that breeds a taste for flagellation and humiliation. Anyway, uh, Divilbus said... Eccles was highly intelligent and 
He know a lot of things. He knows how to work with a person's mind. He can manipulate a person's mind to what he believes in. Dibblebiss described Baldwin and Holcomb as susceptible to another person's mind. Dibblebiss said Holcomb said that he proclaimed himself to be the son of Satan occasionally, that he did some strange things that led her to believe he was demonic. He let off the image that he was generally, people would think he was like a Satan worshiper just by looking at the time I knew him. You know, just because of the way he dressed, just his general outlook. Excuse me a second. Dibblebiss added that if he were in black magic, it, there would be bisexual tendencies because in all magic, there are ceremonies which include bisexual sex magic is what it is called. It does include, you know, bisexual intercourse. Dibblebiss, that was his quote. Dibblebiss said, Eccles, wore necklaces and things like that with bones in them and had given Deanna Holcomb a golden coin and a crow's foot when they broke up. Quote, the crow's foot was generally used in black magic, was supposed to be a hex. The crow's foot was supposed to represent pain. Okay, I mean that he did things that represent black magic. Uh, the crow's foot often was used in death spells and witchcraft. The Deanna Holcomb also described Damien Eccles in her statement to police. She described Damien as involved in black magic, and she said she herself had been involved in black magic, and they were not practic practicing this together, apparently. She said she did her spell work on her own, but they were certainly in sync with each other on their occult practices at that time. There's no reason to doubt her word or her description. She knew Damien as well as anybody. I dare say she knew him better than Jason Baldwin knew him, and that's saying a lot. Um, it's pretty clear that Eccles thought of Deanna even at a very late date, even in life after death, you can see that he st is still thinking of Deanna as his, you know, lost soulmate. And of course, he's found his other soulmate with uh, Lori Davis. But uh, I'm going on. we're going to go on with this. Dibblebiss, by the way, it's interesting. You know, Dibblebiss somewhat downplays his knowledge and interest in black magic and the occult and these, these statements to police, but we'll, we'll read on and we'll see that he's actually pretty knowledgeable. Divilbiss admitted that he had, quote, done a little study in that area and looked up quite a few things. I have met a priest who gave me information and told me about things you know, so that is one way I know things about like ceremonies. I've never been in a ceremony, but I do know how ceremonies are run. 
sometimes. I do know about the use of pentagram and I do know the white magic use of a pentagram which are exactly two different things. There's a downward pointing pentagram but it used for warring off for you know that is what it's supposed to be used for. It's supposed to be used for ward that is ward, a warding pentacle and if it's right side up it's supposed to be invoking pentacle. End of quote. Uh, Eccles not Eccles. Dibblebiss ended up in the news again in a November 1998 appearance by his wife on the MTV show Sex in the 90s. It's a group thing. April Dibblebiss, 21, said she had two husbands. Dibblebiss, then 24, and Chris Luttrell, then 22, and was thinking of making it a foursome because having sex with two men was tiring her out. I'm resisting making rude comments here. Uh, I want to say briefly that uh, the, the other so-called husband, Chris Luttrell, shows up pretty prominently in the court records. Uh, though you won't, you rarely, he certainly doesn't show up in any of the documentaries and doesn't show up in any meaningful way and say, devil's not. Uh, as what he actually is, which is a co-practitioner of Wicca, along with Murray Ferris and a bunch of other kids from West Memphis High School. Not a bunch, but, you know, a f good-sized number. They, they reel off six or seven or eight names of other kids who are involved in uh, Wicca in, uh, from West Memphis High School. Uh, and their statements to police, Ferris and uh, Luttrell do. Um, police talked to them quite a bit. Uh, Luttrell gave some very damning statements to police on uh, Eccles torturing animals, for instance, that he, did, he didn't see personally, but Eccles had reported to him. And, you know, maybe Eccles was just bragging, but it shows a morbid uh, thought process that thinks it's cool to be bragging about Sticking sticks through frogs, for instance, or sticking a firecracker up a cat's ass. Why would you brag about something like that? Why would you do that, number one, and why would you brag about it later? Well, I, I mean, I know the answer to that question. If you're a sadistic psychopath, sounds like a great idea, but for a normal person, even a and I understand teenagers had, I had my own rough edges as a teenager and I understand that, you know, they're still really forming lots of ideas and personality and opinions and so forth. But how many of them go around torturing animals? Not very many. And the ones that do, they've got a problem. Anyway, the appearance on this MTV show brought a custody, about a custody battle over uh, April Divelbiss's th three-year-old daughter uh, with the child's grandparents. The father of the three-year-old was not one of the two husbands, by the way. Mrs. Divelbiss told the Associated Press that this was an attempt to deny her freedom of religion, describing herself as a pagan. Quote, the government feels they have the right to impose their morality on us. We practice Wicca. And within our religion, this is a very moral situation. It's a highly thought of way to raise children, unquote.
The Devil Biss story was featured in Time magazine on November 7, 1999, detailing their lifestyle after the child had been removed from the home and then returned. The article about polyamory noted, uh, the poly community is rallying around April. Chris and Shane, whose case may provide the tale of injustice every movement needs. The case could well be the first of its kind. It's certainly the first to debate explicitly the worthiness of polys as parents. The case was also cited in feminist and queer legal theory. Intimate encounters, uncomfortable conversations. I don't know about you. I'm not rushing out to buy that particular book. Uh, in a July and in a July 17th, 1999 story in the Salon Web magazine. Uh, Mark Perisquia, one of the authors of The Blood of Innocence, and Shirley Downing, who had done extensive reporting on the satanic panic phenomenon, reported on the connection with the West Memphis Three case in a commercial appeal story January 15, 1999. They wrote, Dibblebiss and Luttrell, then both Crittenden County teenagers, weren't considered suspects but were among scores of youths police interviewed. The pair, however, was among a smaller circle of young people who dabbled in the occult and associated with Damien Eccles, one of three teenagers convicted for the murders. Statements by Luttrell and Dibblebiss helped shape prosecutors' controversial contention that the slayings were ritual murders orchestrated by Eccles and two followers involved in a teen cult. They attend Summerlin Grove Pagan Church, which meets in a clubhouse of a Bartlett apartment complex. Now, I wrote this a couple of years ago. The last time I checked, this is all still true. The Summerlin Grove Pagan Church recently still maintained a webpage, which noted the church was organized around May Day, 1994. What a coincidence. Their bulletin board indicated a Court spell for West Memphis Three posted in November 2010. So the Wiccans were rallying around the three con three men convicted for killing three small children and what may or may not have been a ritual occult killing. Nice. Dibblebiss and Luttrell did not know each other at the time of the murders, but met about a year later, which actually would have been around May, April, May of, May of 1994. Uh, neither testified at trials, though Luttrell was subpoenaed. April Dibblebiss, quote, expressed surprise at a story she said she never fully heard before, unquote. Uh, the polyamorous relationship did not last. On Friday, March 23rd, 2012, Shane Dibblebiss died in his sleep, leaving a new wife among his survivors. And they, you know, I don't know the state of Mr. Dibblebiss's religious affiliation at the time of his death, but I will say that uh, the burial, the ceremonies were held in a Protestant church.
and that is enough for me for one day. Um, this is Gary Meese signing out. I will hope to be back again next week with another episode of The Case Against. Wishing you all well and uh, looking forward to, you know, I, I wasn't going to sign out, but I just remember what else I was going to say. Uh, a lot of speculation with Bob Ruff having his own oxygen TV show in which he's going to be looking at the West Memphis Three case. And while I do expect it will generate more interest in the case because it's on TV, and I'm sure Ruff is hoping that this is going to be the springboard to a whole career on television where he gets to be, you know, play detective uh, for Oxygen and other shows and, you know, appear as an expert on CNN, etc., etc. I don't really expect a whole lot to come of the show itself. Uh, it's a very complex case. He spent, what, 60 hours total, more than 60 hours, sort of, sort of just laying the groundwork for his ideas about the case, as wrong as they may be. Um, last year before he suspended the case for legal reasons and it turns out the legal reasons apparently had to do with you know negotiations for a TV show so you know what's he going to do on the, he's got to present something that's palatable for the TV viewer so I expect that you can see, we'll be seeing a lot of dropping um, the body, the bodies of little pigs down into Ten Mile Bayou and watching what the turtles eat or don't eat, which is not even a valid test for what would have happened in this little muddy ditch that only had water in it on a very seasonal basis. The reason it had water in it at that particular time in any kind of quantity is it had been very rainy. There was a lot of drainage going on. Uh, all of Crittenden, well not all, but a great deal of Crittenden County is nothing more than a, you know, a reclaimed swamp if you want to get right down to it. Uh, the soil was very moist. It's, it's it, you know, in the summertime, it, it does tend to dry out just because the summers often get very dry. But it's uh, what they call gumbo, and it's it just sort of sucks you in. It's, it's very porous. It's, it's dirt that's been brought from, dump, deposited there through uh, over many, many thousands, millions of years from upstream and has built this delta down there that extends for hundreds of miles on down to the mouth of the Mississippi River. Anyway, I don't think uh, Ruff is going to come up with anything, anything new, and if he does, he's going to be 
pulling out the usual suspects with the same cockamamie ideas. I, I mean, that's what I think is going to happen. And I think he's going to try to put his own special spin on it. But, you know, I have no idea what I have no idea what that would be. But I think it's probably going to be laughable to anybody who really knows anything about the case. Will the TV audience eat it up? Maybe. I would even say probably. They, uh, a very similar sort of audience seems to have eaten up the message in the Paradise Lost movies. Even though they don't really present a whole lot of real evidence one way or the other. And it's a lot of, a great deal of it's just simply, you know, creating a, an impression that somehow this, this, this obviously weird and malevolent teen and his two buddies somehow didn't commit this crime without ever showing the, most of the evidence against them. And the only, you know, the evidence they do show is usually the most egregiously over-the-top stuff, like Michael Carson's statement about uh, sucking the blood of the penis and the balls. <coughs> I've started coughing, so I'm going to stop soon. And... Um, I'm gonna stop very soon. And uh, Doctor, some of Dale, Dr. Dale Griffiths' uh, less convincing statements, uh, you know, pulling up stuff about black T-shirts and that sort of thing. Now I really am gonna sign off. Have a good week. Thank you.